John, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We begin reading at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Let's ask God to help us tonight. Father, we thank you for the great love which you loved us with when you sent your son to die for us at Calvary. And Father, we know the purpose of your love in our lives is not just to save us, but that we can love one another and that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we pray that we would walk in your love and Father, that you would convict us, Lord, of walking in the ways of the, the world and that the love of Christ would be seen in our lives each and every day. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last time we basically looked at the purpose of God's love in our lives. And I just want to say a few things about that this evening because the question that John answers in chapter 4 is, what is the purpose of God's love for me as his child as I walk in this sinful world? Why has the love of God been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit? Now, the average person, if you ask them this question, they definitely will begin with salvation, which is true. You know, you would say things like, he loved me to save me, to ransom me, to forgive me, to deliver me from my sin, to deliver me from the wrath that is to come, and on and on. We could go on and on because all this is glorious and it's all absolute truth. But the key point in John's letter when he speaks of the purpose of God's love for us in its context is that it produces in us a mutual love for each other. John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And John is saying God lovingly and mercifully for no reason uh, within us initiate this relationship of love that we have. He says in 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we see there the proof of this undeserved great love that God had for us. And then he says in verse 11, he said, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And John makes it as an obligation that we have to love one another and because we love because we have been loved. And so John is simply saying, if God had not first loved us, we would never love him or each other. 
You know, we, we would never love our neighbor. We would have no type of love in our world, in this world that would be biblical. But the redemptive love of God enables us to love him and each other. Now, I just want to repeat something I told you last time. The purpose of the love of God in us is not there to produce, in, I, I, I use this term, inactive introverts who only talk about love, but they never display it through deeds of love. If we are not actively loving one another, then we are not making a proper response to the love of God in us. When we love each other, we're responding to God's love for us. And if we're not doing that, we're not responding to God's love for us. John says in 1 John 3, 16 to 17, John defines for us what true love looks like in action. And I'm just going to read this. Just You don't have to turn to this, but I'm going to read this for us. He says, by this we know love. In other words, he's saying, by this we know what true love looks like. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought, again, there's that word, to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, Jesus' love for us obligates us to love one another. And then verse 17, he says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need, and shuts up his heart from him. In other words, they ignore him and they show no mercy or pity to him. Then John asked this question. If a man or a woman that calls herself a Christian does this, how does the love of God abide in them? So he's questioning the love of God in them. And then verse 18, he says, my children, let us not love in word and in, or in tongue only, but in deed and in truth. So John is basically saying when you speak of love, He's saying that the love of God should cause us to respond to this brother's need and show it by our actions the same as our Lord Jesus Christ responded to our need and showed it by his action, by his sacrificial work on the cross at Calvary. Now, briefly, last time we looked at the function of love and the kind of love that John speaks of fulfills two functions in our life. Number one, he says in John, 1 John 4, 12, he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, he said, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Now, a good way to translate that is God does actually live within us and his love grows in us toward perfection. When you use this word perfection, as we'll talk about shortly, you have to be careful how you use that word because we will never be perfect in this life. But he said God's love is working toward perfection in us. So simply loving one another is just simply visible evidence, John is saying in that passage of Scripture, that God abides in us and that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So whenever we practice mutual love amongst each other, then God's love becomes visible in the lives of all his people in whom he dwells. It's on display. It's on display for the world to see. Think of it this way. Our love for one another is one of the major ways that the world can see the invisible God, you know, and what he's like. And, you know, you can almost see it more clearly than any other way except other than through the word of God. When the world sees us loving one another, we can see that God is a loving, a merciful, a kind and compassionate God. John says in John 1.18, he teaches that it is Christ who has come. And he's come to this earth and he's declared the invisible God. He's come down to earth from heaven to make him known. John says in 
uh, John 1.18 in the Gospel of John, he says, no one has seen God at any time. He said, but the only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. In other words, he's come and he's made him known. Jesus told Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. And if you've seen the father, if you look at Christ, you see exactly what the father is like. So the unseen God, now that Jesus has ascended back into heaven to the right hand of the father for us, the unseen God is now revealed in and through his people, the church, the body of Christ. You know, the condition is that we're loving one another. But I remembered in John chapter 12, verse 20, we have the account of these certain Jews who came up to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, asking him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus, or we wish to see Jesus. They literally wanted to see the Son of God incarnate. They wanted to see him face to face and probably wanted to touch him and talk to him. And I said that because I think the world says to the church today, we're tired of your antics and everything else. We would see Jesus. And they would see Jesus. And the way they're going to see Christ, the best in us, is that we love one another as Christ has loved us. They should be able to look at us and see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Because there is no hope in us except Christ in us. And people who see this have hope. And when they have hope, the one way that they have hope is they see the love that is in us. We live in a world that is so full of hate. It's a relief to hear the word love. And, and people even turn the word love into hate. But the church should show the world Christ, and we will show the world Christ through preaching the gospel, the word of God, and everything else. But one of the major ways that we can show the world Christ and who he is and what he looks like is when we love one another. And the world needs to see that in the day and time we live in. John 13, 35, Jesus said by this, all would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then the second function of love we looked at last time, I'm just kind of give you a, a skip, brief skipping over of what we looked at. He said, John says in 4.12b, he said, his love has been perfected in us. In other words, if we are loving one another, not only is it evidence that God abides in us, but we are indwelt by his spirit. And he says that our love for him is being made complete in us. Our love for him is, being, is growing toward perfection in us. Or you can say, but our love for him is complete in us. Or he, you can say that we are maturing in the love of God. Now, a lot of people don't realize it, but, you know, we talk about growing in the faith. Well, we're also growing in love. And as we grow in love, we look more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we grow in love the more and more that we practice mutual love amongst each other. So we're, he's saying here, he said, it's, it's evidence that God's goal of his love has been reached in us when we are loving one another. God's purpose of loving us is being fulfilled in us and is, bring, is bringing us in to a proper place when we are loving one another. Now, one man says this. He said, brotherly love is God's love fulfilling its ends in us and bearing fruit. In other words, he's saying that the fruit of the love of God in our hearts is seen in that mutual love that we have for one another. 
So I just wanted to show you a few things about the purpose of God's love in our life. And the only reason why that we can love one another tonight is because he first loved us. And that's his purpose. So I want to look a little tonight at God's love and his perfection. Because at 1 John 4, 17, John says, Love has been made perfect among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So John begins in this verse 17, in fact, on through verse 18, to elaborate on this idea of love and its perfection. And so verse 17, he says, love has been perfected amongst us. Now, he's already said that in verse 12, but the ASV would say it like this. He said, herein is love made perfect with us, or you could say, in this will love in its perfection be displayed in us. So this word translated, hath been perfected, is used more than once in John's letter. And Pastor Jim will get to this in the book of Hebrews, but it's used quite frequently in the book of Hebrews. And when you see this word perfect or perfection, it usually for us, it usually means maturity or of a full age. And when John makes this statement, he does not mean when he says our love is going to be perfect that any of us will ever love flawlessly in this world. It's impossible in this world. He's not saying our love for God or our brother is made perfect, but in the sense of being flawless or all it needs to be. But as long as we are in this life, everything we do is still tainted with sin. And so we'll never be perfect in this life. You know, there's nothing about the people of God that will ever be perfect in this life that we live in. Now, I will say this. Perfection awaits glorification when everything will be made perfect, body, soul, and you can say body, soul, and spirit. All who have died and gone to be with Christ, their spirits are in heaven and they are perfect. They are called the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, their bodies are not perfect. Their bodies are still in the grave and they will be made perfect on the resurrection day. But Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. And it talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, one way they would translate that would be say that the spirits are the righteous ones who have reached perfection. In other words, they have finished their course to perfection. I always thought about it, and I've told you this before. I don't know if people that's already on the other side could put up with us now because they're perfect. You understand what I'm saying? But Jesus did, so maybe they could. But I'm just saying that they are totally different than what they are. They are without sin on the other side. And that's their spirits. But still, you know, so we're saying that the spirits of just men have been made perfect, that they have finished their course to perfection. And as you sit here tonight, you are on a course to perfection. And people say, I don't want to die. I go, well, you'll be perfect. You know, because if you die, all of your troubles are over. All of your problems are over. All of your fighting sin is over. You know, you think about that, and I know, I understand why you don't want to die. I'm trying to kid with you tonight. But really, this word perfect means in John's letter to bring a thing to a proper end and to bring it to fruition because you have reached maturity. So what's going on in the church today? What's going on in Reformed Baptist of Louisville today? We are being brought to perfection in our love. 
And until we get on the other side, we will never be totally perfect, but we're headed that way. And that's what God's purpose is for us in his loving us. Now, 1 John 2, 5, he says, but whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. In other words, he says, truly, the love of God is fully developed in him. And he said, by this, we know we're in him. So he's just saying that the love of God has been completed in him. And that's just the fruit of keeping the word of God. In other words, when you keep the word of God, it is accomplished in you exactly what God wants. And that's to work on you and your love and loving one another. Now, the bottom line to all that I've said, John does not mean, and I'm going to say it again, when he says perfect, that anybody's flawless. Only the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, loved perfectly in this life. And I thought about it because Pastor Jim took us through a teaching, and him, Pastor Derek, both, in the uh, prayer meeting on Saturdays. And we were going through 1 Corinthians 13. Now, when you say something about love, people say, well, you need to get tough. That's sissy stuff and everything else. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Because for somebody to live that perfectly, they have to be God. And he did. He lived it perfectly. And this was God. And, you know, this was the God man who walked the earth. And, you know, people were cursing him and spitting on him and everything they did at the cross. And people think that, you know, they did so many bad things to him at the cross. They did a lot of bad things to him when he was just walking the earth. And, you know, he had to put up with the contradiction of sinners and things like that. But when he was put up, putting up with all that contradiction and everything sinners were doing to him, he perfectly displayed 1 Corinthians 13, agape love. And I told you earlier in this series, the love John's talking about is agape love. So when he talks about love has been perfected amongst us, he's talking about the ripened fruit of love. He's talking about the love of God being fully developed in our lives. Now, we're going to look at two things tonight. This is basically what I want to look at tonight. And if this love is properly developed in our lives, two specific things will result from this love. The first thing he says is that we will have boldness on the day of judgment. Or you could say we will have boldness about the day of judgment. And the second thing he says that we'll have loving concern for our brethren. So he says in 1 John 4, 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And then he gives a reason that we'll have this boldness, that we will have this confidence on that day. He said, because so, so he, as he is, so are we in this world. Now, another translation says this, in this will love and its perfection be displayed in us, in our being fearless when we have an absolute confidence about the day of judgment. Now, think about that. Think about going to the judgment bar of God fearless, not afraid to go. You know, I'm going up there. I can't wait to get there. Because most people, when they think about God and standing before God, they think it's like this, this awful, ooh, ugly day, and it's just a horrible day. Not for Christians. 
you know, we're going to be exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be uh, worshiping and praising him that the redemption has been completed and things. People have a perverted look about the day of judgment. All Jesus will be doing basically us on the day of judgment is saying, these are my sons in whom I'm well pleased. That's basically what he's doing. And we will rejoice and we will glory in him. So we will have confident assurance as we stand before God in the judgment or about standing before Christ in the judgment. Now, 1 John 2.28, John spoke of this confidence before about Christ and his coming. He said, he says it's by continually abiding in him that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. He says, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. In other words, that you'll have an unshakable confidence and you won't shrink back in shame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you will not be ashamed of him, away from him and his presence. Now, I want to read you a passage of scripture, and you've read this a lot of times, but I want to show you what that means to be ashamed and to shrink away from his presence. Because when you read what it looks like in the word of God, some people, it's going to be a horrible day when the Lord returns. Revelation 6, 12 to 17. This is, what, this is actually a picture of what it looks like to be ashamed at his coming. This is a picture of what it looks like to be terrified and fearful at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, he gives us a picture of all this awesome cosmic disturbances, I guess you could say, the shaking of the earth and all that will accompany the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, he says this. John, is basically John says this. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Okay, I mean, things are shaken up that day. And then he says here, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the, the caves and in the rocks of the mountain. Why did they hide themselves? I'll tell you why they hid themselves. Because they are ashamed at his coming. And he goes on to say, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And I just want to show you that because they were terrified at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John is promising us when he says all these things that we just read that this will not happen to the Christian. He will not, he or she will not be ashamed at the coming of the Lord. I thought back at the garden when Adam and Eve and after their sin and God was looking for Adam and Eve and he says where are you and they, and, and they said I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What was wrong with them? Wasn't so much about the nakedness. They were ashamed of the way they had just sinned against God and they hid themselves and they shrunk back in shame. And then there's another scripture in Revelation 3.18. Christ warns the Laodicean church about the shame of their nakedness. So basically what John is saying is when that day comes, we will boldly go before the Son of God and not be ashamed 
in his presence. Now, John in verse 17 gives us the basis for boldness on that day. He said, because love has been perfected among us. And we've said a lot about that. In other words, love has reached its intended goal in our lives when we love each other. And when he says it's going to result in boldness, he's saying that it will be, you will have absolute confidence in the day of judgment when we stand before the judge, the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this confidence that we will have on that day will flow from an intimate relationship of love that's been established by the one who is our judge on that day. Now think about it. Instead of fear, there will be an experience of boldness and openness and confidence toward our Lord Jesus Christ because there will be solid evidence that we have a living relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. One man says this way, he says, he who has lived his life under the inspiration and power of the perfect love, and not, not a flawless love, but a perfect love, will on that day experience boldness. Now, what does he mean when he says they will experience boldness? That he will be free to approach and to commune with Christ the judge. And I like what he says here. And he will absolutely have no reason to be afraid of him. No reason. It's hard for us to picture that. And, you know, we think about the day of judgment. And, you know, you tell people that your sins are not a factor on the day of judgment. You know, you say, why are they not a factor? Because Christ bore the penalty for them on the cross. That's why they're not a factor. And one reason why, the main reason why that you will have boldness on the day of judgment is because you have been forgiven of your sins. You've been pardoned. For your sins, and you will be able to stand boldly and freely approach and commune with Christ, who is the judge. And then he says another reason why is because as he is, so are we in this world. So he's still, he's still explaining how this boldness and fearless confidence is possible. And the primary reference to these words, as he is, so are we in this world. I believe that speaks of our standing and our position before God. In other words, we are accepted in him. The word of God says we are accepted in the beloved. And in this world, our standing before God is the same as the standing of our Lord Jesus Christ before his father. And so you will have boldness on that day. Some people believe that these words says, as he is, so are we in this world, speaks of us sharing Christ's character, which I could go with that, you know, being conformed to his character because John says in 1 John 3, 2, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So those two things. You're standing before God and being conformed to the character of Christ because Christ is the pattern of our purity and conduct. We will not be ashamed on that day. Now, when Christ returns, there'll be full proof and disclosure of the glory of the Christian's sonship. Now, that's Romans chapter 8, and you know, I don't want to even touch that tonight, but our sonship will be seen by the whole universe. And we will stand fearless as we stand before the judge. And we will look him in the face. And here's the good thing about this. The judge that you're going to look in the face, guess what? He's your friend and your advocate. 
So why would you be afraid on the day of judgment? Now, we're looking way out when we say this stuff, but he's your friend and your advocate. And I could throw some more things in there, your savior, your mediator between God and me. You could throw so many things on there. You know, that's why you won't be ashamed on that day. He's your friend. Now, if you do that in this world and the judge is your friend, they need to stop it, you know, and get somebody else to be the judge. But he's your friend, and he made that sacrifice for you and me. And then in verse 18, John continues with this idea of boldness on the day of judgment, and he deals directly with the love that God has for us and what it does in us. He says in verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So when God's love in us has reached its intended goal for us, there is no fear. And he says it's because fear involves torment. And when you talk about torment, you're talking about punishment. Now, this word fear has two meanings. You know it basically, but I'm going to remind you of them. It means alarm. It means dread. It means fright. You know, it has no place in love. It speaks of the fear of a criminal or a slave who is guilty of punishment. That's what fear, this fear that John's talked about. And the second fear is a fear that can mean reverence or respect or honor. And the love of God in the hearts of all his children, this kind of fear brings this reverential awe before God, which what we call all the time a godly fear. All Christians have a fear, but it's a godly fear. It's where they respect and honor God. And this fear that we have that we call a godly fear, it keeps us from doing what would displease and grieve and dishonor and disrespect God. That's exactly what a godly fear does. You know, a lot of people think that when you say the fear of God, and, you know, there's a lot of good books on the fear of God you can study and read. When, when you say the fear of God, they act like God's up there with a, a fly swatter and going to slap you out the first time you sin. That's not what God does, you know. No, God, he chastens us, but the fear of God has nothing to do with God being mean and angry towards you. But the fear of God means that we respect him, we reverence him, and it hurts us to sin against him. Now, I'm going to give you an example tonight. You know me, I don't give many examples. But I'm not afraid of punishment now when I sin. And you say, that's awful. You need to be. I didn't say that I didn't hate to sin. I said I'm not afraid of punishment when I sin. Before salvation, I definitely was afraid. Before salvation, and listen, I hadn't been taught or anything, but I know some things that people should know naturally. Number one, there is a God. And number two, there's a hell. I knew that. And so every time that I would sin, then my heart would tell me, you need to be punished. You are guilty. And you know your conscience is not going to let you get by with sin. And so I figured out after I'd been taught over years, Pastor Jim did the major part of the teaching and things, because when we was in the charismatic church, we were afraid of God. Well, and we were his children, and we were afraid of God. And we figured that any little thing that we did, God was going to wipe us out. That's the wrong fear that you have of God, because you're his child. But anyway, I figured out as time went on that Christ has borne the punishment and the penalty for all my sins. 
You say, why are you not afraid tonight? Because of that one fact that he's borne the punishment and the penalty for all my sins. And now when I sin, yes, I'm ashamed and I'm embarrassed before the Lord when I sin. And I've grieved the Lord because and when I disobey him, but I'm not afraid of him. What I'm afraid of is displeasing him. It's a difference. That's what I'm afraid of. And uh, so I go to him in faith and repentance to be clear the same as when he converted me. First John 1 now, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now that I have to be safe and been made perfect in love, I am not afraid of punishment. I don't like chastisement, but I'm not afraid of punishment. Punishment <clears throat> is like torment. God is not going to torment any of his kids. And so perfect love casts out fear. And when I sin, I hate and I'm disgusted with myself. And the main thing is I hate my sin. One thing that sinners don't do and they can't do is hate their sin. And one of the main things that you will know whether or not you're a Christian, do you hate your sin? Because if you hate your sin, what that means is, is that you truly have a relationship with God and that he's your heavenly father and you don't want to displease him. So when he says perfect love casts out fear <clears throat> because fear brings torment, I believe he's talking about God's love, which is perfect, which is salvation has been poured out in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And God's love by nature casts out fear whenever it arises in our lives. But that's the love of God. You say, well, what is that love all about? When sin comes into our lives and fear comes with that sin, God says, and you ask him, I forgive you. That's the love of God. And it cast out fear. And so the apostle knows that fear is from time to time. It's going to rear its ugly head in our experiences as children of God. And, and believe me, no believer is so perfect in this life that he'll get to the point where fear will be completely banished from their life. But as we grow in the love of God, our love will increase and fear will diminish. Fear will be replaced with confidence. And then John goes on to say, but he who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, he's not saying that if you fear that you're not a child of God. Now, he could say that to unbelievers, but he said he who fears is not made perfect in love. You know, that love is not accomplishing what God wants to do in your life. Now, when I read passages like this, and if you're a pastor, you'll understand this. You have to consider people's struggles, people's understanding and maturity in the faith. Because you would not know this, but a lot of Christians still struggle with assurance and with confidence. And so John says that he that fears is not made perfect in love. Here's the way I want to say this. He has not yet been enabled to attain the intended goal of the love of God in their hearts. And a lot of that lack of confidence is doubt. You know, it's doubting the love of God. You know, it's doubting God and who he is and what he says in his word, like we heard this morning, and all the promises that we have in the word of God. But some people are involved in that fight all the time, and that fear brings torment. 
And another word that they use for torment is torture. One man says this fear is destructive to inner peace and mars the consciousness of the love of God for us. It, it destroys your peace. It is inconsistent with a full understanding of the nature of redemptive love, which has removed our sins and established a loving relationship with God in this life. Perfect love casts out all fear. Say, what are you saying to the church tonight? Do not be afraid. Because if you belong to God, you don't have to fear. Do you need to quit sinning? Yes. Do you need to walk holy before God? Yes. I'm saying all that. But when John talks about love, he's talking about our love for God, and he's talking about our love for one another. And so John is saying that one of the things that will come from this love that we have for one another and our love for God is that we will have boldness. We will have confidence on the day of judgment. Now, if I... If I ask you a question tonight, I don't know how everybody would answer it. I'm going to ask you one question. Are you afraid to die? That's only one question. The most terrifying thing to the world is death. And it should be. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But I want to ask you as a Christian, are you afraid to die? And I'm sitting up here all the time thinking, like, you know, what will it be like? Who am I going to see? What does Abraham look like? You know, all this kind of stuff when you go on the other side. And, but the question comes up is, are you afraid of, to die? And you know what? Perfect love will cast that fear out. Because if we die, we will be in the hands of God. And the angels will carry you over. And, you know, the Bible says Abraham's bosom, but it'd be heaven. But the angels will carry you over. And that's the safest place you could ever, ever, ever be. Now, I'm not saying be you know, I want to see my family. I want to see these kids here grow. I want to hand out more Smarties. I mean, I'm going like, you know, they had this thing the other day. I've never seen so many Smarties in my life. And, I said, and uh, I've got bags full of them at home now. So the kids will be hitting me for them. But what I'm saying is I want to see Christians grow. I want to see families grow. I want to see families being made. I want to see all this stuff. But I want to see it for the glory of God. And if God says, you got to come home, I don't want to be afraid. You say, you're bold saying that. No, I'm just saying that I don't want to be afraid. Oh, yeah, I have my doubts, and I think about what's it like on the other side and all these things that you think about, you know what I mean, that's, that's really serious. But perfect love casts out all fear. And that perfect love is the love of God. And nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if you, if you have to go to the grave, quote that one as they put you in that casket and roll you away. Nothing can separate us. And the first thing he says, death, no life, no anything other thing, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to stop right there for tonight, but I just want to give an application because we're talking about fear and just share a few things before we close down tonight. Number one, the ruling principle in the conscience <clears throat> of all Christians, all true born-again, spirit-filled children of God, the ruling principle is the love of God. Your conscience should be controlled by the love of God 
You say, why? Because it brings hope and it drives out fear. Because John says there's no fear in love. And he says, perfect love casts out fear. The love, love of God is the only love that is perfect. And at conversion, it was poured out in your heart if you're saved by the Spirit of God. And it casts out the fear of judgment and punishment. And you no longer need to be tormented tormented with thoughts of dying and going to hell and be rejected and condemned on the day of judgment. These things set me free. Because when we sin, the first thing we think, maybe not everybody, is hell. But that shouldn't be the first thought for the believer. But it can be the first thought for the unbeliever. Because there is a punishment. And you know, God is a faithful, loving God, but he calls you to himself. So I'm saying tonight that the ruling principle in the conscience of unbelievers is fear. Fear involves torment, and that speaks of punishment. And John says, one who fears has not attained to perfect love, and that, that love that will cast out all fear. That fear that unbelievers have is a tormenting fear. And the good news tonight, it can be removed. It can be cast out. But the only way it can be cast out is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. And the love of God will be poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit who is given unto you. And the end goal of that love of God that's cast out in your heart is that it will end and cast out all fear. What else will happen? It will bring boldness and confidence and assurance. You children, the world is goofy. But let me tell you something tonight. I was goofy when I was a kid, you know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not looking down at people. But I'm going to tell you something. You need to sit down in a chair and look at the wall and think seriously about what life's all about. You know why? Because... If you don't come to Christ, and I'm not threatening you, I'm just telling you a fact, you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know what's going to happen in this life, you know. And he's called you here over and over again. Pastor Jim called you this morning. Derek calls you all the time. Cal calls you all the time. I mean, God uses men's mouth to call you all the time to come and believe on the Savior, repent of your sins, and be set free from your sins. But I'll put it to you like this. The longer you stay, the more tormented your conscience is going to be. Because your conscience will not ever tell you you're right with God until you're in Christ. And so all the sin that you commit, you're telling yourself it'll be all right. That's not God telling you that. And your conscience will not lie to you. No, you need to sit on the chair, talk to yourself. And ask yourself, what am I doing with my life? What is life all about? You know, I've heard tons of gospel messages, and you need to ask yourself, what am I going to do, number one, and when am I going to do it? And you say, well, he can't do it on his own. Then you say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to do it. Push me to do it. Make me willing in the day of your power. And help me to do it. Well, to leave this with the brethren tonight, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We have nothing to fear. I mean, Renisha, we talk all the time. I said, I said, I'm just so glad that I'm in a church that will tell me who Jesus is and what he's done for me. I, I don't need anything else, but that if, you, if you will start right there, we'll get to the other stuff. And to know that there's a Savior and that I don't have to fear. And on that day, when we stand before him, it, it, that, for, that word boldness means freedom of speech. I will not be afraid to look him in the face and talk to him. Why? Because he has saved me and set me free, and I belong to him. So John is saying, perfect love casts out fear. And if you have fear tonight, it's only one thing. You're, you're probably you're a believer and you're struggling or you're a sinner and you need to be saved. And cast that fear out and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful tonight that you gave your only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you that you've cast fear out of our lives because you loved us. And, Lord, that you loved us with an everlasting love. And, Lord, when we leave this room tonight, we have nothing to be afraid of. And, Father, we do pray that those here who are not saved, Lord, that you will give them a new heart, a new mind, and a new spirit. And, Father, that you will take the torture out of their, their conscience and give them confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we're able to meet today. We thank you for the word of God that you have spoken to our souls all this day. And, Father, help us to never take it for granted. But, Lord, that we would feast on your holy word. And, Lord, that we will continue to praise and worship you all the days of our lives. Father, we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.